we're in a, a little sermon series, and when I say little, it's quite long and it's extending, um, in Acts. So we, uh, we've, been, we've been slowly getting through it. And for those of you who have been a part of uh, Christchurch right from the very beginning when we were praying on Wednesdays, what we did is we were looking at Acts and praying into the beginning of Acts. We think, what a cool way to kind of think about what it looks like to, to plant a church and to be um, a church in a, in a town like Felton than to read Acts. And we got to the end of Acts chapter 2, um, over about 10 weeks, I think it was. So we did it very, very, very slowly, verse at a time. Um, and so we're breaking into new ground this morning because uh, we're going into Acts chapter 3. <laughs> so some new stuff for you today, uh, which I feel very pleased about. And actually, as we're reading through uh, Acts and continue through, um, there's some more incredible stuff to pull, pull out of it. So next term, we're going to carry on. Um, in Acts, and in about two or three years' time, we should get through all of it. Um, who knows? Two or three years is probably optimistic, more like five years. Um, so we're going to carry on next term and keep looking at what does it look like, um, or what did it look like back then when the church kind of was on fire and it was making an impact in the community? What lessons can we learn um, from what we read in Acts? What can we apply um, to us today, because we know, and Luke before the service was praying, um, that just from, was, a, was an excellent reminder, actually, you know, the stuff that we saw the disciples doing, the stuff that we, we read about God doing in their midst, um, that wasn't limited to that time, but we know that, that God is still on the move. He's still at work. He's still drawing people to himself. He's still healing people today. And uh, so that's why we want to keep reading this and keep learning um, about uh, the early church because there's so much to learn. Our vision as a church, um, which many of you have probably heard, but our vision as a church is to, to see the church on fire, um, church on fire with the presence and the love of God, a church that, that knows and loves God, seeks to be like Jesus, and is full of the Holy Spirit. We want to be a church on fire, and we want to see Feltham alive. This is the town that we believe we've been brought to as a church. Um, we're pretty narrow-minded in one sense in our focus. We want to see this town which God has called us to come alive in Jesus. We want to see every part of this town be transformed by the love of God, um, its people, um, its systems, its structures. Um, we want to see the name of Jesus kind of ring out from this place and from the local churches and bring about life and transformation. That's why we're here, um, and it's a big vision, um, because we, I, you know, for me, I don't want to see any part of Felton miss out on what God has for it. And so when a church is on fire, and this is what we read in Acts, when a church is on fire, the city or the town that it's placed in benefits. People are saved. Lives are transformed. Families are reconciled. Injust systems are, are, are restored and fixed. Um, and we want to do everything we can in our town um, to bring it to life. Um, to transform those things that, that are broken, to get involved in dark places, to, to do ministry with those on the margins, um, to create community in this town. And this is what we read in Acts. Like I said, like when we read through Acts, we see this, that these little groups, this, this kind of small group of people over to one side, filled with the Holy Spirit, and this movement of the gospel goes out, which transforms everywhere. Um, and so, so far we've looked at in this series how the disciples waited on the Holy Spirit. They understood that if a city was to be transformed, if the name of Jesus was to be lifted high, then we needed to be, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they waited on the Holy Spirit. 
Then the Spirit fills them at Pentecost, and then this dynamic and rapid movement of the gospel occurs um, such that multiple people come to faith and the city that they're living in is utterly transformed. Pentecost, that moment where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church, has a massive effect on the Christians and on the world. And so what we've been looking at now, once we've got, we kind of read through Pentecost, we had a look at last, kind of last three weeks, what a spirit-filled church looked like. Those people who are full of God, what does it look like? And we've looked at how it's a church that loves God. It's a church that loves, loves others, loves learning about who God is from reading scripture. It is committed to each other in, in deep fellowship, not just friendship, fellowship, breaking of bread into prayer. And it's a church that practices hospitality. It's, it's a church where its people live generous, loving lives. Um, one that um, breaks barriers of demographics and socioeconomic uh, lines and racial lines and all sorts of things such that all people are welcomed. Um, the kingdom of God is one where we see every race um, and every culture represented. And I long for our church to be that kind of church. Um, and so, and that's what we, we saw at the beginning of Acts and the beginning of the church. So today we're going to, like I said, we're going to move into Acts 3, new territory, very exciting moment. And so we'll have a look at what happens, kind of an outworking, I suppose, um, of, of this, this, uh, this moment of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit's poured out with Peter and John uh, walking along. And so if you've got a Bible, um, hopefully it will also come up on the screens. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 to 10 is what we're looking at this morning. Um, I'm looking forward to drawing a few things out of here. Before I read it, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words. Um, we thank you for the ways that you speak to us through it. We thank you for the ways that our lives are transformed um, when, we, when we study it and when you speak to us through it. So we ask, Lord, this morning um, that you would help me to preach faithfully. And I pray, Lord, um, that your Holy Spirit would be here transforming us, forming us, into the likeness of Christ. Um, and we pray that everything we do in, the, in these coming moments um, would seek to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter three. <laughs> One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and he began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What an incredible story. 
What an incredible moment. Peter and John wandering along. Um, and there's, there's a whole bunch of things that kind of struck me as I read through each of these 10 verses. So um, if I may, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to draw out a couple of things that, that, that really spoke to me as I was reading this passage. Um, and hopefully, um, they will also stick out at you. So let's start right from verse chapter Verse three, no, verse one, chapter three, Acts, that's where we're at. And it says, one day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. I love the way it just says one day. It's like a usual day, like any other day. It wasn't like a special day. It wasn't like, um, you know, a, a Sunday, like, we're, you know, we're heading, we're heading to church and we're going to do this, that, or the other. It was just like one un, non-extraordinary day. They were heading to um, the temple. Um, and I wonder how often we think, you know, for God to move, it needs to be a really special day and all the variables need to be correct. I need to have been fasting for at least three to four days or weeks. Um, and then if all of those things are in the right order, um, then we can expect God to move. But I think it's, it, it's significant. It was just like one day, um, not an unusual day, just one day they were heading up to prayer. And they were still hanging out in the temple and praying um, three times a day, and this was the last time of prayer at three in the afternoon. And so prayer was still of vital importance to the disciples, um, as it should be, and it is for us as Christians. And then in verse two, it says, now man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going in to the temple courts. Now, when, when someone's been lame from birth, um, in that society, um, that was basically a death sentence. Um, they were, well, shame was heaped on them. They were rejected. They were despised. They were put to the very margins of society. Um, and in fact, many of them who were born with these, these conditions from birth um, would be put to death as a newborn because they were seen as not human, subhuman. Um, and perceived as a massive inco inconvenience and resource drain and had absolutely no value. Um, and so when you looked at a person like this, um, you would, well, he would have felt like he had no value. Um, he was shameful, that nobody could look at him. Um, it's, it's probably true that as he sat there day in, day out, he'd been beaten and mocked and made to feel sometimes completely invisible. Now, this man would have had the most horrible existence, and his day would have looked exactly the same. It would have been he was carried to the temple gate where he would have stayed there all day and then carried home. And his whole purpose was to beg for money. Um, that was his life. Um, he had been utterly excluded by his culture, um, and no, nobody really cared for him at all, maybe except for the people that would carry him to the temple gate to beg. And he was placed then... Um, by this temple gate. And, and if you were to look at the, the history of it, it was like this immaculate bronze gate that kind of sparkled in the sunlight. Um, it was the gateway by which you came into the temple of God in Jerusalem. Um, it was like the, the most kind of holy, sacred place um, known to the Jewish people. Um, it was in, when you entered through those gates, that's where you experienced the presence of God. That's where you heard um, the Torah read, this is where um, the Jewish people gathered to worship God. There was this, they, they expected, when they entered the temple, to experience the presence of God. Now, this temple gate um, was as far as this man was able to go. 
So it was a strategic place in one sense because he would know that the, the people would be walking in and out through that temple having spent, spent some time in the presence of God and probably knew that they were probably feeling a tiny bit more generous after spending time with him so they would give him some money. So a strategic point um, to beg. But more significantly, when I look at this, this passage, it, it is, that's as far as this man was, was allowed to go. He was only ever allowed at the gate. Um, the temple rules at that time, in that day, no lame or maimed or sick in any way could enter the presence of God, could enter the temple. So this man, because of his condition from birth, was excluded from worship and was excluded from the very presence of God. He lived his life as an outsider. His whole existence was one in which he was on the margins, um, excluded from people and excluded from God. So awful existence. I don't know if you ever feel like this, not in, not in the kind of same way of not being able to walk and being, being on the margins like that, but I wonder if you can identify with this idea of being an outsider, not being part of what's going on. I wonder how many people outside of faith, when they see a church, think, I can't go in there. Um, everybody else can go in there, um, but not me. I'm not welcome here because of this, that, or the other. I don't have my ducks in a row. I, you know, I don't pray enough. I don't know enough. I don't give enough. Um, I understand that God loves everyone, but, but not me because um, I'm too broken. I've done this. I've messed up. I'm disabled. Whatever it might be. I wonder um, what, uh, what contributes to people, or maybe even yourself, feeling like you are an outsider. Because the, 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 for, me, for me, my longing, my heart, is that, that this wouldn't be a thing, that there, that there wouldn't be outsiders when it comes to faith, when it comes to connecting with God, being in the very presence of God, but so often there are. And sadly, the church um, has operated in such a way that there has been rules um, sometimes they're spoken rules and sometimes they're just kind of cultural things that kind of just happen that make people feel like they are on the outside. I wonder if there are people that have come to the doors but feel that they can come no further. Or I wonder if there's people sitting here even today who look around and you think, gosh, everyone else is connecting God, but I could never do that because of dot, 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 dot. I wonder if there are times when you feel like an outsider. And the powers that be at that time kept this man out of um, worship, out of the presence of God. And I wonder, and I you know, start to think, gosh, I wonder how often, and, it, and I know it does, how often this still happens today. Um, that there are people that aren't welcome in our church, or they don't feel like they're welcome in our church. I wonder, like, I, then I started to think about all the ways that we don't even deliberately make people feel like outsiders, but they would feel like it. You know, if, Right now, and this is something that I feel really convicted about as I've been preparing that we need to address, that if someone was to come here and they couldn't hear very well, how are they going to engage? If, if someone wasn't able to see very well, how are they going to engage with what we're doing here? How are we helping those people? How are we welcoming them into the presence of God? If we believe that God is for 
people. He loves people. Then what does it look like for us to be a church that welcomes all people so that nobody is an outsider? These are the things we need to think about, you know, in terms of even like our steps and so on. How easy is it for people to get throughout the whole church? Um, and so, you know, when we start to think about what makes people feel like an outsider, sometimes it is the rules that churches have put in place that have excluded people, but sometimes it's just that we haven't thought about some of the things that make people feel an outsider. And my prayer is um, that we will become a church um, that enables all people to experience the presence of God, all people to experience the wonderful community that we have here at Christ Church. And I pray, really, that the Holy Spirit reveal to us the areas in, in our church life where we have accidentally or inadvertently created people who feel like they're on the outside. Because um, my heart is really that everybody in this town is, is, is welcomed in, that is, is embraced, has an opportunity to meet with Jesus and have their lives formed by the Holy Spirit. Um, I really pray that we don't have men like this man that we read in Acts 3 um, in our town and in our community or even in our community. Um, we want to kind of abolish this idea of insiders and outsiders. You are all welcome here. And so we want this to be a place of welcome and hospitality. And that's what we're going to work towards. And so if you have a heart for that in, ter in terms of even like how we include people in worship, um, you know, if, if you're awesome at sign language or you know some really great ways of engaging people who can't see, um, and, and there's a whole list of other things, I'm sure, that we, that we try and figure those out so that we can make this a space where there aren't conditions in place that prevent people from being a part of our community and experiencing God. And, and, and thankfully, as we're going to see in this passage, um, this man... Um, is able to enter the temple through God's miraculous move. So verse 3, we'll carry on. When he saw Peter and John, when this man, he was sat on the ground, saw Peter and John, and, he was a, and they were about to enter the temple, he asked them for money. Asked them for money. That was what he thought would be the answer. If I can get just enough money. And, and so often I wonder if that's something, somewhere sometimes our motto. If I can get some more money or if I work a bit harder, if I do this and do that, then everything will be fine. I'm able to get fulfillment. I'm able to heal. I'm able to, whatever it might be. Um, money has become something of an idol um, for us in which we look to it for our security. And we ask for it and we, and we think if we have more of it, then we're going to be okay. And this is what this man was asking for. Then Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And uh, I, I love this moment, because can you imagine this man? Um, he would not dare to look up, right? Because he, He's on the margins. He is covered in shame. I mean, my, in my mind, he, his head is down, his hands are up, and he's hopeful that people would give them some money. He wouldn't look at them, wouldn't look them in the eye. And what's incredible in this moment is that Peter and John, they say, look at us, and they look at him. And I, and I think in that moment, there's something very significant happening. They are, they are saying, to, they, well, they're giving him dignity. They're saying, you are a human being. You are a person. I see you. I see the condition you're in. 
And it is a sense in which when the Holy Spirit um, is at work in us and fills us, we start to see people as God sees them. We don't see them as an inconvenience or you're too difficult or gosh, that's a bit messy and keep walking on. But instead our eyes then are, are fixed on all people. There aren't people who are excluded. And so we see in this moment, this man has handed his dignity. They are kind, they're compassionate, they show love. He lifts his head maybe for the first time. Who knows how long this man has looked down and avoided eye contact. And Peter says to him, look at us. Such a challenge to me because so often I avert my gaze when I see somebody in need. Um, and I've got a lot of things to do. Do you know, like, it was quite important for them to get to the temple on time, I imagine. Um, but for them, they're distracted by something that risks, somebody, not something, but somebody that really matters. They look upon this man and in so doing, hand him his dignity and remind him that he's loved by God and he has value. It's a simple thing, but it's huge. Um, I know that when you sit down Sit down with someone, even asking them their name makes such a difference. Um, and so this is an important reminder for us as a church. Are there people that we avert our eyes from? Are there people that we don't take time for? Is our schedule so busy that we don't have time to help or even to ask someone what their name is? Um, Peter and John, it was like that was their default. They looked at him. And then Peter said, after this beautiful interchange, Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And Peter and John, they understand that money, gold, silver, all these things that the, things that the world values isn't the answer. It's not going to satisfy. It's not going to heal and save. The only thing that can save is Jesus. And as Christians, this is the thing that makes us distinct in the world. This is the thing that makes us different from, this, not just a thing, this is the, the person that we have that makes us distinct from every other thing in the world. There are organizations all over the place um, that give money or um, you know, serve and all that kind of stuff. The thing that makes us distinct is that we have the man, Jesus Christ, who transforms life. This is not an insignificant person that we have on offer. This is the God who heals and transforms life. Jesus is what we have. Um, and the challenge is, in amongst all the other things that would seek our worship in our world, we need to understand that we need to value him the highest. He's worthy of our praise. He's powerful to save. And, and, and silver and gold just aren't going to cut it. And so Peter, in this interchange, understands the depth and the reach of the gospel. He understands the depth and the love of Jesus for these people. And, and, and I love um, that, that, that he understands that the depth and the reach of the gospel is one that is not only able to save, but to heal. Um, and I think when we start to ponder this, um, the depth and the width and the breadth of God's love for you and for others, it will blow your mind and it will change your life. And so what happens in this moment in verse um, five, 6 and 7 is that um, we are seeing 
one of the many outworkings of the gospel, one of the many outworkings of the victory that Christ has won on the cross. You see, through the cross, what Jesus does by raising from the dead, he took victory over evil, over sin, over death, over disease, and he ushers in this new kingdom in which all things will be renewed and restored to the way they were always intended. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ and believing what he did for you on the cross, you too are found in this kingdom experiencing this rest, restoration and renewal um, that, that reaches out to every aspect of our world. I always go back to Revelation 21, but I, um, but I love it. I love this image of the kingdom, this, this future and present hope that we have where God is reconciled fully with the world, a place where God himself will be with them and be their God, it says in Revelation 21, where he'll wipe away tears There'll be no more death or mourning or pain for the old order of things will pass away and he who's seated on the throne is saying, I'm making everything new. We need to get our heads around the idea that, the, that well, this gospel that, that leads to renewal and restoration of all things. I was reading um, an article by John Piper when he was interpreting Revelation 21, particularly when he was speaking about making, how, how this verse says, I'm making everything new. And he explains that there are four things um, that, that God is renewing and restoring in this new kingdom. Firstly, he is making us spiritually and morally new. The sin and the brokenness in us is being renewed and restored so that that is no longer a part of who we are. Creation is being made new. The brokenness and the deterioration that we see in our world, that, when Jesus returns, that will be fully restored to what it was like at Eden where it was good. Um, our relationship with God is being renewed and restored. You know, the relationship that was broken down by sin through Jesus, and when the kingdom comes in, that is restored again. And then lastly, we are physically, and, and, and our bodies are made new. That the ailments that we have, the, the problems that we have with our body, the, the, the effect of sin in, on our bodies is renewed and restored. And this is what we're, we're seeing right here in this passage. And so what happens next in verse seven? Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. I'm so struck by these guys, courage, right? For me, when I pray for someone for healing, what, so often what I do, here's my confession. I, I say, how would you like some prayer? I pray for that, that person. I say amen and I do everything in my power not to ask them. Um, how do you feel? Um, for fear that they'll say exactly the same as I felt before, and I'm like, ugh, doesn't work. Um, but these guys, they have such faith. They, they have such trust in Jesus um, that at the end of their prayer, they extend their right hand, they lift this man. They know that Jesus can heal I'm going to speak a little bit more in just a second about the dynamic, about what's happening around healing um, in, the, in the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Um, but in this moment, they have the faith and the trust in Jesus that he would heal this man as they lift him to his feet. And then in verse 8, it says, he jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. 
And so two incredible things happen here in verse eight. One, obviously there's this healing that happens. This man who has been unable to walk for 40 years, um, lame by these gates, begging totally on the margins and full of shame, um, is healed. Um, in this moment, he's able to stand. And of course, healing is in, the, is in the nature of God. God heals. There are so many passages in Scripture in which um, we, we read that it is God who heals. Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord who heals you. Psalm 103 um, says how God heals your diseases. In Matthew 9, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease, and sickness. And so these healings that we see in Scripture, when we see and hear them, and the healings that we see today are a foretaste of this kingdom that is here and is coming. And as we await for the return of Jesus, um, at that point when he returns, everything will be put to right. The groaning, the pain, the tears will end. And in the meantime, we wait and we long for the kingdom to come in its fullness um, with the arrival of Jesus. Um, and so this, while we're in this now and not yet of the kingdom, um, this is why we all sometimes see healings and sometimes we won't. And in the midst of that, we need to trust in God's timing, trust that he loves his people, um, and trust he knows what he's doing. But we mustn't stop praying for people to be healed because as we will see, it becomes a platform for which we can share the goodness of God and the, and the love of God. And... Uh, I've been so encouraged, actually, of the different times that I've prayed for people and I've seen them healed. He, he, he demonstrates his love to us by saving us and healing us. And, uh, and so that's why we pray for people to be healed, um, not just for healing's sake, but so they would encounter how much God loves them and how far he has gone to save them and bring him to himself. And, you know, connected with that, the second thing about this moment where the man stands and he's leaping and praising God, the first thing he does is he runs into the temple. The outsider is no longer an outsider. And I would say that that's, that's got less to do, I think, with the healing, although that's helped him get in, certainly. But this moment of encounter made this man know um, that he was loved, that he was welcomed in, that God loved him. And this is the essence of the gospel, I think. Um, it's one where um, we were an outsider. We were outside of the love of God. We were in an utter mess. And through Jesus Christ, when he looks upon you, in that moment, you can know that you are loved, that you are known, that you are free, that you are no longer an outsider. He welcomes you. And it's a beautiful moment in this story. And then, of course, this then lays the platform because all the people are filled with wonder and amazement because they've seen this guy for 40 years, sat at this temple, and it lays a, a platform for Peter and John to speak of the one who saves and heals and redeems and is in the business of restoring and renewing all things. Not silver and gold, but Jesus. This is what we have as a church. Jesus, the one who saves, the one who loves, the one who heals, the one who takes the outsider and welcomes them in. 
And this is the type of church that I want us to be, that we recognize that we have Jesus. Let's not get caught up in thinking we've got to have all of these things right. And this is the thing that I have to keep remembering. You know, if only, you know, if we, if only we could get the worship right. Um, you're doing a great job. Um, <laughs> if only we had the right equipment or if we had the right flags or the paint color or all this kind of thing, then people will come in. But that's not what we have to offer. It's not the stuff. It's not the silver and gold. It's, it's Jesus. And we've been so distracted by all these other things um, that for many of us, our faith has been slightly stifled or maybe really stifled. Um, that we, we find ourselves not actually needing God because we've managed to sort m- most of the needs we think we have through working harder and getting money and all that kind of stuff. And somehow we've restricted the, the movement of God in our midst because um, we've, in the West in particular, we have managed to get all that we need um, through money and so on. But God longs to do so much more. He longs to do so much more. And I get so caught, like, it's very hard like, with this whole kind of leading a church thing because you've got a budget and stuff, which is new information to me. And I find that I get quite concerned about money. Um, but this is a timely reminder that what we need, all I need, is Jesus. I need to preach Jesus. I need people to know that silver and gold is not the answer. There's this old school conversation that happened between, um, uh, I think it was Pope Innocent II and Thomas Aquinas. And so the story goes. Um, Thomas Aquinas once called on Pope Innocent II, um, and what he was doing, that, that Pope, was he was counting up all the money that the church had. And the Pope said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. To which Thomas Aquinas said, and now neither can she say, rise up and walk. Let's not get distracted by the money because we know that it's not us that can heal. It's not us that can save. It's not us that can transform a city. Only Jesus, he is enough. And my prayer for us this morning is that that would be awakened in us, that we, again this morning, would not, put, would not give anything else our worship. We would not be dependent on any other thing or any other name but Jesus. We aren't selling a program. We can't save Felton. Only Jesus can. I'm gonna finish with this story that um, I've heard multiple times, and you may have heard it before as well. It's a story um, of a minister who was assigned to provide counseling to patients in a state mental illness facility. Um, And when he arrived for duty, he was sent to a padded cell with a large group of deranged, barely clothed people. And the stench of human excrement filled the room. And when he tried to talk with the patients, they responded with groans and moans and demonic-like laughter. And then the Holy Spirit prompted him to sit in the middle of the room and sing a familiar children's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. 
The Bible tells me so. And then nothing happened for the first day, but he persisted. And for weeks, this minister would sit in the middle of this room and he would sing this song with more conviction week on week. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. And soon the patient started to sing with him one by one. And by the first, by the first month, 36 of the severely ill patients were transferred from the high dependency ward to the self-care ward. And within a year, all but two were discharged from the facility. A beautiful image that when we know how much Jesus loves us, when we, when we turn our face to him, he heals us, and he redeems us, and he welcomes us. That's my prayer for us as a church.